This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. Because life's just better with a book. Welcome to the Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. It is the Man Booker Prize edition of the Hope Book Club. Uh, also known as the Hubba Bubba edition, the Mozzarella edition or the Downward Dog edition. Because today we are going to stretch you a little. Uh, Natasha Moore is now more flexible than a yoga instructor after reading some of the winners of the Man Booker Prize. She has tackled 2018 winner Milkman by Anna Burns, a tale of gossip and hearsay set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. She's also been reading George Saunders' first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, a book described as new and startling. It won the Booker Prize in 2017. We're going to discuss our favourite book-inspired travel destinations, and I'm going to review the only Booker Prize winner I've ever read, an Australian novel by Richard Flanagan, Narrow Road to the Deep North, a gruelling story set in the Japanese prisoner of war camps on the Thai Burma Railway. And hey, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the books we discuss. Email bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. But first, let's hear from Milkman by Anna Burns. As regards this psychopolitical atmosphere with its rules of allegiance, of tribal identification, of what was allowed and not allowed, matters didn't stop at their names and at our names, at us and them, at our community and their community, at over the road, over the water and over the border. Other issues had similar directives attaching as well. There were neutral television programs which could hail from over the water or from over the border, yet be watched by everyone this side of the road as well as that side of the road without causing disloyalty in either community. Then there were programs that could be watched without treason by one side, whilst hated and detested across the road on the other side. There were television licence inspectors, census collectors, civilians working in non-civilian environments and public servants, all tolerated in one community whilst shot to death if putting a toe into the other community. There was food and drink, the right butter, the wrong butter, the tea of allegiance, the tea of betrayal. There were our shops and their shops, place names, what school you went to, what prayers you said, what hymns you sang, how you pronounced your H or H, where you went to work. And of course there were bus stops. There was the fact that you created a political statement everywhere you went and with everything you did, even if you didn't want to. There was a person's appearance also, because it was believed you could tell their sort from over the road, from your sort this side of the road, by the very physical form of a person. There was choice of murals, of traditions, of newspapers, of anthems, of special days, of passport, of coinage, of the police, of civic powers, of the soldiery, the paramilitary. During the era of not letting bygones be bygones, there was any number of examples and many nuances of affiliation. That's Anna Burns in Milkman. It's a story that takes place in an unnamed town in an unnamed country that appears to be Northern Ireland during the troubles of the 1970s. It's not an easy book to sum up in a sentence, so I thought perhaps I'd just read you the opening line. The day somebody McSomebody put a gun to my breast and called me a cat and threatened to shoot me was the same day the milkman died. Interesting. Milkman won the Booker Prize for 2018, but it wasn't universally adored by critics. Let's find out what Natasha Moore thought of it. Hey, Natasha. Hi, Katrina. Uh, I guess one of the more unusual features of this book is that none of the characters are named. Yes. Can you explain how that works? Uh, well, you'd think it wouldn't work, right? Yeah. You'd think that you'd... You could do that for a short story. Yeah, you'd um, think it would get annoying. Yeah, but I actually found it 
amazing. Um, so you don't know her name, the narrator, the 18-year-old who, you know, it's kind of about, it's her story um, set in the troubles. She finds herself the object of attention from this guy called the milkman, who is not a milkman. He's a paramilitary. Um, he's kind of a high up, um, you know, renouncer of the state, as they call them. Um, so he's on the Catholic side of the conflict and the troubles. Um, and so what does the nickname the milkman refer to? I think it refers to the truck that he drives. It's okay. like a milkman's truck. But, um, but everyone has these kind of monikers, these names that uh. she refers to them by, such as somebody makes somebody or, um, you know, third brother-in-law or Ma, like her mother, mm. or Tablets Girl, who's this kind of mentally disturbed girl who goes around putting um, poison in people's drinks. Um, there's, you know, all these kind of random people and you'd think it would get confusing, but actually it really doesn't. Um, and I think it's it's really testament to the power of her writing that if you opened up before reading it at any later point in the book and tried to read a paragraph, you'll be like, I have no idea what's going on here. But if you read from the start, she builds up this world and builds up this cast of characters who, even though they don't have names, you very distinctly know who every single one of them is and you really have no confusion. Like if you have read all along the way, then you find yourself participating in this language. And mm. I actually, even though it does take some concentration, I found it really engaging and even enthralling. I loved it. Wow. So what did you learn about the main character, our nameless main character? Who is she? Well, I mean, she's quite fun and really very mature for an 18-year-old. Um, she's the distinctive thing about her from, you know, as we go along, we learn from the perspective of the community is that one of the things she really likes to do is she likes to read while she walks. And apparently this was the genesis of the actual novel for Anna Burns is that she used to do this and people used to get upset about it, that she would walk along the street reading her book. We've all done that. Um, <laughs> That's the big deal. Um, but, I mean, especially, you know, it paints this picture of this very tight-knit community with lots of suspicion and, you know, internal policing of behaviour because of these political problems. You know, she calls them the political problems, um, the troubles that mm. are going on, the conflicts between Catholics and Protestants, um, between kind of unionists and the what are the other ones called? People. The unionists and the loyalists. Mm. Okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we all understand the conflict in Northern Ireland, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but... You know, this is a community where everyone is in everyone's business and everyone knows who everyone is and behaviour is very much police. So you're not really supposed to step out of line in any way. So even though there are people who are like paramilitaries and, you know, committing violence all over the place, the community is very disturbed by the fact that she reads while she walks and that puts her... She, she talks about how some people are beyond the pales um, and she discovers that she might be a beyond the pale because of this reading while walking. And, look, I have to ask you, what did you think of her writing? Because some reviewers haven't liked her really long, complex sentences and the dashes she uses, that kind of thing. <laughs> how did you feel about that? I thought it was brilliant. So, I mean, I don't know how much difference it makes that I, from when I lived in the UK, I have a bunch of Northern Irish friends and I've spent a bit of time in Northern Ireland and really enjoyed it and I like the kind of distinctiveness of the... Like language the lexicon. and the vibe, yeah. So even, you know, she talks about her little sisters as we sisters. Um, it's kind of a, um, 
yeah, there's there's something specific to the nationality, like to that community in the language that she uses. But also I feel as though, you know, her language does get more and more, um, well, different to how sentences are normally written. But again, I feel like she takes you along with her and it's hilarious. Actually, her writing is very clever and very funny and I really enjoyed that. So, you know, you get kind of more and more involved, like you get into this thicket deeper and deeper and then you kind of turn around and don't really know how you got there, but she's taken you with her. Okay. So So you don't think some people might find it hard to read? Some people do find it hard to read. Okay. Um, But you didn't. You got swept along with it. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, it's not like, oh, I can just flip the pages super easily. This is a really easy read. Like, it takes a lot of engagement. I mean, the writing was the big thing for me. But also, I think also because it throws back to the 70s. And, you know, the plot with the so-called milkman is really that he's kind of harassing her. He's sort of seen her around and decided. He's, like, older and married. She's an 18-year-old girl. She has a what she calls maybe boyfriend because their relationship is a bit fluid. Um, But he's actually decided that he wants to have a relationship with her Um, and she's not at all interested but because he kind of shows up and like walks alongside her a few times suddenly the whole community is gossiping about how they're having an affair and so the pressure is that well the community has decided that this is happening so even though she's like but I'm not interested and I haven't done anything Mm. that doesn't matter because it all comes down to the gossip yeah Um, and and even kind of thinking about that in terms of harassment and she doesn't have in that community at that time, she doesn't have language for what is being done to her because he hasn't touched her yet. He hasn't actually outright asked her for anything. He's just kind of created this atmosphere. He sort of, you know, implies threats to her boyfriend. Um, He, you know, implies that he's interested in her, but because he doesn't say anything outright and because he hasn't done anything, Mm. she can't kind of defend herself. Yeah. Wow. So there's kind of you know a nascent feminism in there, and yeah. Okay. What What do you think um, Anna Burns was really trying to convey through this novel? I mean, you'd have to ask her, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it feels like just a really rich evocation of what it's like to live in this particular time and place in a really intense way, because you know there's sort of the way that a suburb, like a close-knit community operates normally. And then on top of that is the layer of the troubles Mm -hmm. um, and everything being us and them, everything being our side of the road, that's their side of the road, or over the water, which is England, and how they, you know, everything is through that lens. So it's kind of... So that's amplifying all the stuff that's going on. So it's 20 years since the troubles ended, um, you know, to the extent that they did. Hmm. Um, And... I guess here's a novel that really captures what it was like to live during that conflict and to kind of have that colour all of life. So I feel like that's a really great, you know, not exactly war literature, right, because Mm. it's quite an unusual sort of conflict, but capturing something about that particular um, moment in time and in history and, you know, what it was to experience that through a really interesting story and a series of kind of vignettes of things that happened, some of which are horrific. You know, the she talks about in how her area, the police, you never call the police because the police are, you know, 
part of the British state and they don't come because they know that the only time someone calls the police is so that they can shoot them when they arrive. So police don't come, they police themselves. Um, You don't go to hospital because um, if you go to hospital, then the state, someone might try to make you into an informer um, or even if they don't, people will think that you've become an informer. And so so you deal with medical stuff in-house, like you don't go to the hospital. So things like that where you kind of go, wow, that was what it was like for them to um, live this way and for that to be normal. Mm, Wow. And so do you think it was a worthy Man Booker Prize winner? Absolutely. I think I totally deserved it. All right. Good to hear. Now, another Booker Prize winner, this time from 2017. We're getting stuck into George Saunders' first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. It's about the US President Abraham Lincoln, but it's told in a surprising and unusual way by the spirits who live around the grave of his 11-year-old son, Willie, who died of typhoid fever. So it deals with grief and loss, but also the big picture politics of the day. So when I say that this is George Saunders' first novel, that makes him sound like an inexperienced writer, but that's not the case. No, I mean, he's written a bunch of... This is the first kind of extended work of his that I've read, but I've read articles of his. He's written for The New Yorker and other places. He's written a bunch of short stories. Um, And actually the first thing I heard about this book was I read a review, I think in The Atlantic, um, which talked about how... And it it turned me off the book because it was like, oh, you know, like it's it's interesting, but his stories are very, you know, contemporary. They're about our world now and they really nail a bunch of things about our culture and that's what we need now, not this kind of weird trip back into the past, into like mm. the bardo around Willie Lincoln and what's going on there. And so I kind of went, oh, it sounds a bit pretentious. I don't know if I want to read that book. But then so many people have told me that it's amazing. Okay. And I went to hear him speak. So At Sydney Writers' Festival? At Sydney Writers' Festival when he was here. Okay. So I changed my mind and I'm really glad that I did. Oh, that's good. Now, I wasn't really familiar with this term bardo. Can you explain what that refers to? No, I wasn't either. It. Um, so I think it's from Tibetan Buddhism. It's, a, uh, it's kind of the intermediate state, a kind of limbo, right, between death and the afterlife. Um, and most of the characters in the novel are in this state and they don't really know it. They kind of still think they're alive or they're sort of in denial about the fact that they're dead. Uh, they think they're kind of sick. They still expect to return to their lives. Um, mostly they're there, you know, you kind of figure out as you go along because they have some big regret or some unresolved business in life that they just can't let go of, whether it's kind of they're so obsessed with their possessions that they couldn't let go of that or, you know, they were interrupted in the middle of something that they felt was really important um, or, you know, unresolved relationship or something like that. Mm. So what's the book really about? (laughs) Well, it's a very unusual premise, right? It's a very unusual book. So it's it's very unusual to read. And actually one of the things that um, when George Saunders spoke about it at the Writers' Festival, um, he said that a lot of people give up about 30 pages in. And when I went and um, I went and bought my copy and had him sign it afterwards and he, you know, signed the front, um, you know, one of the title pages and then flicked open to that point Mm. And drew an asterisk and was like, keep going, <laughs> because this is the point. He was like, this is the point where lots of people give up. And I was like, okay, I'll know, because it's weird, right? It's quite unusually um, structured. It's partly 
it looks like dialogue between um, all these different characters, these different spirits in the Bardo, um, and that's alternating with chapters which are kind of just historical snippets from letters or from historians or from um, people at the time who are writing accounts of the Civil War, which has recently begun, or of um, Abraham Lincoln and his wife and his son, so the son's illness and death and how absolutely incapacitated by grief that Lincoln and his wife were. Um, after losing this 11-year-old son. Um, and so, and I think some of those are real historical sources and some of them are made up by mm. him. But either way, you have like the whole thing is fragments, mm. which is a weird reading experience, right? So yeah. there is a narrative going on, but you experience it in quite a different way to how you normally do in a novel. And so is the story, is it about Abraham Lincoln or is he just the way in to the story? That's a really good question. I mean, you'd certainly be convinced, at least for the first half, that it's not really about him. Mm. He's kind of incidental. So it was reported in the newspapers at the time when Willie Lincoln died, when this 11-year-old boy died, that Abraham Lincoln went and visited his son um, in the crypt and it was talked about that he actually took the body out and held the body a few times, mm. um, the decomposing body. Um, historians disagree on whether that really happened or not, but that's kind of the germ for this novel is that, you know, all these people, these spirits in limbo are kind of, you know, wanting to not be forgotten and they can't let go of their lives. Um, but no one ever really comes to see them and certainly nobody, like, engages with them because they're sort of, you know, not really there. They're yeah. not accessible. Whereas you know, Abraham Lincoln comes to see his son and holds the body and that's really meaningful for these spirits. And so this is sort of presumably why Willie Lincoln can't go on to the afterlife is because his father can't let him go. Um, and so the whole story becomes, you know, like it's actually very um, problematic for children especially to stick around in limbo, that that is um, – going to have very dire consequences for him and make it impossible for him to go on. And so the characters become involved in this quest to kind of make it possible for him to move on. And as um, as the novel continues, it becomes a little bit more about Lincoln and what he's going through in terms of the loss of his son, but also dealing with the burden of the Civil War and all these people are going to lose their sons. And Does the book sort of tackle the political themes of the Civil War? Sort of um, obliquely, mm -hmm. everything's sort of oblique in this book. Well, what about the... You uh, look troubled. Well, I, I, I guess I'm just trying to reconcile that and then the spiritual aspect of this, mm. you know. How does it approach death, spirits, the afterlife? Like, is it is it Buddhist in its understanding of that, you know? I found it quite Christian. Okay. Um, you know, there's a sense of, like, occasionally, because there are opportunities for all of the spirits to move on um, to the next world, which we don't learn a lot about what that looks like. But, you know, occasionally there's a thing that happens where I would interpret it as, I guess, angels kind of come and try to convince them to let go and to kind of come and be with God or be judged or, you know. Okay. not hang around in this limbo, in this netherworld. Um, and I think there's kind of a Christian framework for it, but it's quite nonspecific and kind of not the point. Yeah. Um, it's just assumed 
nothing is explained particularly. So I suppose, you know, whether you believe in an afterlife or not, it's a sort of thought experiment that you go, okay, well, what does this reflect about what people do attach their hearts to in their lives and what that would mean, hypothetically speaking. I mean, it is, there are a lot of disturbing things about the novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of them is kind of the language almost. It's very bawdy, very kind of like a real range of topics addressed in the different characters um, and, yeah, really doesn't hold back on a lot of the details. Okay. Yeah, let's put it that way. <laughs> but also it's really like it makes you think about things that you've never thought about before. Um, so it's a very different experience as a reader, I think. Mm. And I guess you just have to be prepared for that. You have to be open to that yes. and willing to use that to reflect yes. on yes. how you feel about those and things. And it's one of those books that I guess because it's not like anything else. Mm. And I think Saunders said this at the festival that it teaches you how to read it. So it's the sort of thing that you have to get into a while before you're like, okay, I get how this is working and now I'm able to enjoy it because I kind of understand what's going on and I've gotten far enough into the world mm. of the book that I'm with him. Okay. Yeah. All right. So just to wrap up, Natasha, what did you enjoy about it? I enjoyed how weird it was. Okay. <laughs> that it was... Um, so you found that you know, refreshing? That, or? Yeah, that I kind of I didn't really know what was happening for the first little while and, you know, had a lot of questions. So that was quite, um, you know, a unique reading experience. I really liked the language. It's really inventive, the way that the language is done, and even kind of coining these terms that suit what's going on in this kind of semi-afterlife you mm. know the the characters talk about things like walk skimming um which you know is not kind of a term but you get a very vivid sense of oh they're kind of because they're sort of ghosts right they're not exactly walking they're sort of skimming and and even the when that sort of angels come and some of them some of the spirits do give in and go on to glory potentially um the one of the characters refer to it as a kind of matter light blooming effect. So it runs the words matter and light and blooming together into one word. And again, doesn't explain it. You don't know what it is. But because the writing is so inventive, you know what's going on, even though none of these are real words. And hmm. I think that's really fascinating. Well, that's cool. Now, already, Natasha, in this episode, we've been discussing books set in Ireland, the USA. My choice is set in mostly in Thailand, partly in Australia. So, you know, books can take us anywhere in our imagination, but every now and then a book recreates a place so vividly that you actually just have to go there and see it for yourself. Have you ever done any book-inspired travel, Natasha? I have, in fact. Yeah. And, you know, I almost feel like we discuss this book in every episode that we do. But I went to Guernsey ah! a few years ago. <laughs> it's course. the theme of every episode. And it was yes. actually not only because of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Although that would be a good reason to it go. It would. It was yes. one of the reasons. But the other reason, one of my favourite books in the world, is called Green Dolphin Country and is also set in Guernsey. Wow. It's set partly in Guernsey and partly in New Zealand in like the middle of the 19th century, written in oh. the middle of the 20th century. And it's... I feel like usually this is really the book that made me want to go to Guernsey because 
usually when I read novels and they have lots of description of place, mm. I'm quite bored. Yeah, like me I too. Don't, I find I, it really hard to like picture out. and I'm yeah. just like, Ugh, let's get through this bit. Let's get to some dialogue or some, you know, stuff Action. happening. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because I'm not very observant as a person like in my own life I don't really notice stuff like that that is so true for me too I don't like description I'm like just cut that back because I can't picture it yeah Green Dolphin Country is the first book I'd ever read that I was like I am spellbound by her descriptions of Guernsey of the place I was like I have to go to this place um and you know everything that she described I just loved um it was magical so her name is Elizabeth Googe um and I was just like oh you are an amazing writer. I don't know how you did this, but you got me to appreciate description of place and yeah. made me actually go and visit this place. And did the place live up to the literary ideal? Look, it couldn't possibly live up to um, Elizabeth Googe's magical Green Dolphin Country, um, but uh, I did really enjoy it. Mm. And the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Pie Society it did live up to, partly because it has a really great World War II museum mm. about the occupation. So all of that was really interesting. But also it was just, you know, it's Channel Islands. It's a really delightful place. The kind of place where, like, the buses stop wherever. Like, they'll pick you up wherever. Oh, they just pull yeah. over. Isn't and you're great? like, oh, I didn't have to be at a bus stop. And sometimes you're just, like, crossing the road in, you know, the main city, which is, like, tiny, right? Um, and cars would just stop for you to let you cross. It's a bit like I, I don't I have no right of way here, but like that's nice. It's really My lovely. grandmother grew up on Alderney in the Channel Islands. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and so I think I have another excuse to go to the you Channel Islands. You should definitely go. Yeah. I really should. Um, Well, my first taste of book tourism, very first one, was when I was a high school student and we did the Uh tour of the rocks. Which Beady Bow from playing Beady Bow. Yeah, we did that too. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, And then, of course, over steps. Yeah, exactly. The Argyle Cart and all that Mm, stuff. mm -hmm. Um, But then the first place I went, you know, myself overseas was Bath and the Jane Austen Museum. But I was Mm, quite mm -hmm. disappointed because. My tour guide didn't know the books that well and made a few factual errors. And I was kind of like, no. oh, she hasn't considered this. Oh, I think and I that. listened to a podcast, I think, in Bath. Uh, a Jane Austen podcast. Well, I had a real good. live person. And look, yeah. she knew stuff, mm. but there were a couple of things I went, oh, that could be argued, you know. Wow. I feel like for Jane Austen fans, you really need to. Like, you need Jane to get Austen it right. fans know this stuff. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, it was 20 years ago, to be fair. But more recently, um, I did do a book tour. I just did it myself, um, you know, completely unorganised. I went to Edinburgh and I walked the streets that feature in the 44 Scotland series, Street oh, Series. Oh, you love that series. By Alexander McCall Smith. So these are all set around the Georgian Newtown. So the Newtown in Edinburgh is like, it means new as in like 18-something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the city really is a character in these books. So, you know, I went to Scotland Street, which is where half the characters live. I saw the Cumberland Bar where Angus Lordy and his dog Cyril like to drink their beer. I went to Dundas Street where Matthew has his art gallery. Aww. And I had to have coffee at Valvona and Crawler, which is a famous long-standing Italian delicatessen uh, where Irene likes to buy her small goods and drink coffee. So um, I take it it lived up to expectations. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and I did it by myself so uh, that I could yeah. just be enraptured and no one would have given me a hard time. Mm. Like it wasn't like I didn't drag my family around. I just kind of did it in my heart like, oh, there's that. <laughs> 
is that? Oh. You know, Edinburgh and does a really great literary pub tour as well. I've heard that, but, you know, I haven't read enough of the books. Like, oh, you don't need to. They explain it. It's all like Walter Scott and Robbie Burns and yeah. stuff. And also pubs are involved. Like you, Yeah, well, that go sounds good. Pubs. But, like, I haven't read Walter Scott. <laughs> I have read Robbie Burns, but there's a bunch of others like Ian Rankin that I've never read. Nah, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> next time. You enjoy it anyway. I'll next do it. I had Edinburgh. kids with me. I had a four-year-old. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. I didn't really. Just next time. Um, okay, well, now we've got to get to my Yeah, what have you got? Pick. Okay, so this is honestly the only book prize winning book that I have actually read. I think and you need to read some more Booker Prize winners. <laughs> sounds that way, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but I am happy that this is an Aussie book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I guess I was talking about, you know, at the start of the episode about books that stretch you. This, for me, it, it did push me out of my comfort zone um, and extended my reading. So the book is Richard Flanagan's Narrow Road to the Deep North, uh, which you probably already guessed. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to hear George Saunders say get past page 30 because with this book I was told a few times you've just got to get past page 40 and then it gets mm, good. Interesting. And it took me three attempts. <laughs> but you kept going. It did. Like I literally I get I get to 30 and I go, oh, and I have to start again three weeks later. <laughs> and then I got to 40 and I was so close. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep going. And, yep, I got there. And It's you know, a long book. It is. Oh, it's a really long book. But I have to say it's really important to finish it. If you start, yeah. you have to finish because a lot of my friends in book club got three quarters of the way through and didn't finish. And I'm like, this is a book that doesn't make sense if you don't finish it. The beginning mm. is pointless unless you get to the end where it all sort of ties together. Um, so for those who don't know much about it, it you know, it's set on the Japanese labour camps um, on the Thai Burma Railway. Um, and, yes, there's a lot of trauma. Um, there's some quite gruelling stuff. Like I learned the meaning of the word vivisection, and I wish I didn't ever know that one. There's a lot one. of trauma. I remember some scenes from that book very vividly. Yeah, yeah. there is. There's mm-hmm. some nasty stuff. The main character is quite tormented as well because he doesn't feel like he's a good person. He's kind of being held up as a war hero, but he he doesn't feel he deserves it. I think the thing that I found hard about this book, you know, I've read other books set on the Taiburma Railway. I've read other World War II books, but you know, it didn't have that redeeming factor of, you know, someone with a really strong moral fibre or a great sense of purpose or hope that you find in other books like, say, The Miracle on the River Kwai or The Tartan Pimpernel or even The Book Thief or The Tattooist of Auschwitz. These kinds of books Mm. often have, you know, either a hero or a love story or something that sort of gives you a little bit of a glimmer of hope. But then I thought the moral ambiguity about this book was really interesting because you also get insights into the minds of the... Japanese, like the people running the labor camp, right? And you how really they do them back home, and that's a that's a really interesting part of this book yeah. is the way that helps you understand the mindset of the Japanese. Because I think if you've only grown up, particularly if you're an Australian and you've grown up hearing about war, the the treatment of Australians in these Japanese prisoner of war camps, you can't get your head around the cruelty of it. And yet he takes you into the mindset of what led to this, why they thought what they were doing was was fine or required or yeah necessary yeah. and that mm. they were doing their role and that and, and what surprised me too was the drugs actually that the japanese were on they were really addicted to About what that. was it was it mm. some kind of amphetamine that they yeah, used right. all the time and that made them quite crazy when they take them on to fight and when stuff. they had yeah. withdrawal symptoms so there were a lot of aspects to it that i thought were really insightful because there's a love story too there is a love story but it's a little unconventional mm-hmm. um and so i think that that was the thing he had this moral 
uh, I guess, dilemma about feeling that he wasn't a good person mm. and stuff that came with that. So, yeah, it was very interesting read. If you decide to read it, you have to finish it. That's the thing I <laughs> would say. Here are the say. conditions that yeah, we're giving you. <laughs> yeah, you know what you're signing up for. It is worth reading. I'm not sorry I read it. Having said that, I wouldn't read it again. Uh, I thought it was amazing. I yeah. really loved it. Yeah. Um, it was a bit it was traumatic, though. Yes. But also amazing. And I think it matters how it's framed as well because I think we read it for book club and some people in our group had a copy of the novel where on the back it kind of described it in quite a different way, like I think as, as a romance or something. Oh. Which, so she was expecting reading it that it would, she kept thinking it would go somewhere quite different to where yeah. it was and so... And didn't enjoy it as a result. Yeah. So I think you want to be prepared for the trauma. Absolutely. <laughs> but you also have to get to the end because yeah. if you get to the end, it all makes sense. And it does have a beautiful kind of, you know, aspect to it when it when you get to the end. But if you quit three quarters through, you're going to be really dissatisfied. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, in this episode, this extension episode of the Hope Book Club, we've reviewed three books that won the Man Booker Prize. There was Milkman by Anna Burns. Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders and Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan. Thanks for listening to the Hope Book Club because life's just better with a book. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.